Welcome to Scripture Studies, a verse-by-verse study of the Bible. I'm your host, Scott Sperling. Today we'll start looking at Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, quite a difficult passage. So grab your Bible, sit back, and open your hearts and minds as we study the Word of God together. looking at a passage starting in Romans chapter 5 verse 12 and pretty much going to the end of that chapter, though we'll spend a couple of studies uh, getting to the end of the chapter. So turn in your Bibles there, Romans chapter 5 verse 12. As we've discussed over the last couple of studies, in Romans chapter 5, Paul has been telling us about some of the side benefits to being justified by the grace of God through faith in Christ how we have peace with God, how we have access to God. In the passage just preceding this one, Paul talked about our assurance of salvation, about how we're saved from God's wrath through Christ. This leads Paul to speak a bit about the entrance of sin into the world and the effect of that event. And so that's what we'll look at today. This passage, starting in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, is quite a significant passage in the Bible, and it's quite controversial. It has inspired thousands of pages of analysis and commentary. Some commentators have called it the most difficult passage in the entire Bible. Here's what Philip Schaff said about the passage. He was a great 19th century Christian scholar who wrote probably the most famous history of the Christian church. Here's what he said, quote, This section is difficult in proportion to its depth, grandeur, and world historical comprehensiveness. Only a mind of the very highest order, to say nothing of inspiration, could conceive such vast thoughts and compress them within so few words." So, we're in for a bit of an adventure over the next couple of studies as we try to unravel the passage. Here's what we'll talk about in today's study. First, I'll give an overview of the entire passage and include talking about some of its difficulties. Next, we'll read the whole passage and and summarize it. Then we'll discuss difficult passages in general and a guiding principle that I use in interpreting them. Next, we'll actually talk about some of the difficult and sticky issues that this passage raises. And finally, we'll discuss the meaning of verse 12. So let's get to it. Let me start by giving an overview of the passage. There's a bit of an irony about this passage and the way it was written. Paul speaks in a fairly straightforward language, and the main theme and meaning of the passage is clear to most people who read it. In fact, I've read or recited this passage hundreds of times, and I never really considered this passage to be a difficult passage until I started to dig into it for writing this study, and frankly, until I read some of the commentaries about it. Some of the commentaries about this passage were quite infuriating to me. They're all over the place with respect to the implications of what Paul is saying here. And because that's the case, if you read multiple commentaries on this passage, like I do when I prepare these studies, you're bound to come across one or maybe a dozen that you violently disagree with. Because, as I said, the viewpoints are all over the map about this passage. And these opposing viewpoints are coming from scholars who all have a high view of Scripture. 
Every commentary that I read as I prepare my studies is written by a scholar who has a very high view of Scripture, who believes, as I do, that the Bible is inspired by the Holy Spirit and that the Bible is the Word of God to man. It's very important that, if you're reading a commentary about the Bible, or even a more general book about Christianity, or even a book about living a Christian life, it's extremely important that the author of the book have a high view of Scripture, that the author believes that the Bible is the Word of God and not just some book that people wrote. If they don't have this high view of Scripture, then what you're reading would be at best worthless and at worst harmful to you. But even given that I was reading the writings of scholars who all have a high view of Scripture, yet the opinions about this passage are all over the map, as I said, and it was quite, quite frustrating to me, and even infuriating to me, as I read these commentaries, even to the point where I wanted to throw some of them across the room, and I probably uh, would have if I wasn't using my Android tablet to read the books. And so the bottom line is that it's a great challenge to teach this passage because there are so many divergent views about it. And yet, the thing that I noticed about this passage is that the divergent views don't kind of rear their ugly heads until you dig below the surface of the passage, so to speak. If you read just the words that Paul wrote, read them simply, as I think he intended them to be read, then you'll find that the writing is quite straightforward, and you'll get a clear idea of what, Paul, uh, what Paul's point is here. And once you realize this, then maybe that gives us a clue as to the root cause of why this passage is seen as being so difficult by scholars. Perhaps they are overanalyzing it. Perhaps they are reading more into it than what Paul intended. You see, Paul didn't intend to write a philosophical treatise here. That was not his intention. When someone writes a philosophical treatise, then in order to withstand the scrutiny of the science of philosophy, they need to clearly define all terms. They need to speak to the exceptional case, cases in addition to the normal ones. They need to clear up any ambiguities of either language or thought, things like that. But Paul didn't do any of this because it wasn't his purpose to write a philosophical treatise. If it was, then this passage would have probably stretched into dozens, if not hundreds of pages. And what good would that be? Because then no one would read it. Instead, Paul, in clear and concise language, communicates the point he wants to make. And he does so with a literary style, even an artistic style, rather than a philosophic style. And so there are concepts between the lines and even between the words that are unexplained by Paul because that's not his purpose here. And the scholars jump all over these unexplained concepts and try and fill in the blanks. And in doing so, they put words in Paul's mouth and claim that he is saying more than what is written here on this page of six or seven verses. And so I think what we should do is read the text more humbly and maybe Admit that there are mysteries about life, death, and sin, the world, the human race. Mysteries that we just won't understand in this life. And so, here's my strategy in teaching this passage today. First, we're going to read through the passage from verse 12 through 19, and then talk about the general concept 
that Paul is communicating to us. And as I said, I think that the theme or concept is very straightforward and understandable. And then once we've understood the main theme of what Paul is writing, we'll dive under the surface a bit, and I'll point out some of the difficulties that this passage raises, some of the concepts that bring about so much controversy among scholars. But before doing that, let's all agree about something. We're not going to fully understand all of the implications of what's written here, and that's something that makes the Bible great. In this one passage, and in the Bible as a whole, there's a remarkable amount of depth, and there are mysteries spoken of that we will never fully understand in this world. And as I said, that's why the Bible is such a great book, and why we can study it our whole lives and always learn something new from it, and never fully understand everything that's written here. So let's dive into this passage. No, well, wait a second. Let's wade into the pool. We'll be taking the, the steps into the pool rather than diving in. We're going to start in the shallow end of the pool in this passage before we dive into the deep end this morning. And so I'll read verses 12 through 19. And just as I'm reading, think of what in general terms Paul is trying to communicate here. Here it is, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 19, quote, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, to be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is a pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of the one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of the one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one act of righteousness resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man the many will be made righteous." Unquote. Here's my stab at a summary of what Paul is saying. Quote, through Adam, sin and death entered the world. Through Christ, for those who believe, the curse of Adam can be reversed, such that we can obtain the blessings of God and ultimately live. In other words, the work of Christ overcomes and conquers the fall of Adam. Unquote. That's my stab at summarizing the entire passage, summarizing basically what Paul is communicating here. So, we've made it through the shallow end. Now, let's swim out to the deep end a bit, so hold on tight. There's some waves and turbulence out there in the deep end. One thing, though, 
As I was navigating these difficult and controversial concepts, there are some guiding principles that provided a foundation for any interpretation that I would come up with. Here are the guiding principles, and, and they follow kind of the character of God as revealed in the Bible. The, the guiding principles are that any interpretation that I come up with have to be consistent with the fact that God is righteous, God is just, God is gracious, God is love. If any interpretation of a difficult concept in anywhere in the Bible violates any of those principles, then in general, I reject it because it's not consistent with the character of God as revealed in the Bible. And this really can be a rule for interpreting any passage in the Bible. In other words, if any interpretation of a passage in the Bible is inconsistent with the character of God, as documented many places in the Bible, then that interpretation probably should be rejected. So let's keep these things in mind as we navigate the difficulties in this passage. God is righteous. God is just. God is gracious. God is love. Those are good things to keep in mind in general, I would think, even as we go about our day-to-day -day lives. So here's what we'll do. We'll start at verse 12 and go through the passage pretty much phrase by phrase like we normally do. And I'll bring up the sticky points and deep concepts that are raised as we go along. But what's important is that we already have a basic understanding of the whole passage in general, as I described before. So let's not lose sight of that as we're kind of mired in the deep end, so to speak. So let's read the first verse of our passage, Romans 5, verse 12. Quote, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned, unquote. The first thing to notice here is that this is just half a sentence. Paul's intent here is to compare and contrast Adam to Christ, and he starts to do that, but doesn't finish the thought here. He'll pick up on this a few verses later. But even in this partial sentence, there are some thorny issues below the surface. In fact, in the commentaries I read, there were more pages written on this one verse than all the rest of the verses in the passage combined. The first issue that comes up in this verse, and in the passage in general, is why does this passage speak of Adam as bringing sin into the world, and not Eve? Didn't Eve sin first? Of course, we know that Eve sinned first, and of course, Paul knew that too. So why does he say that it's through Adam that sin entered the world? And some scholars explain this by saying, well, Adam was the head of the first family, and so it speaks of Adam here as bringing sin into the world. But, but, but that answer doesn't satisfy me. I think there's something else going on here. And I think we can get to what I think is a more satisfying answer to this question if we try to imagine what would have happened if only Eve had sinned and Adam didn't. So let's do a little thought experiment and try to think what would have happened if Eve ate the forbidden fruit and then offered it to Adam and then Adam said, no, 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 that's against the command of God. I'm not going to eat it. That's not what happened, but let's imagine, let's say it did happen. Well, what would have happened then? Well, we don't know for sure because it didn't happen, but I think it's a safe guess that Eve would have been banished from Eden 
because sin can't have fellowship with God. She would have died, but Adam would have continued to live. And so they wouldn't have had any children to propagate the human race. And and I think it's quite probable that Adam would have lost another rib, so to speak, and God would have given him another companion. The point of this, though, is that Adam's sin was significant because it brought the downfall of the entire human race. Adam's downfall made sin unanimous on earth, such that at the time of Adam's sin, every person on earth had sinned, both Adam and Eve. And so they were both expelled from Eden and both went out to live in the world. And so it was Adam's sin that brought sin into the entire world because Adam and Eve remained together in the world, not Eden. And in the world, they had children and they propagated the human race. And so though Eve sinned first, it was Adam's sin that expelled the entire human race from Eden, such that all descendants at that point uh, of Adam and Eve were now subject to death. Uh, Does that make sense? Adam's sin made it so that we all die because death was the penalty for the sin. And so because both Adam and Eve sinned and death came to both of them, and so death also comes to us because we are their offspring. The human biology was corrupted such that we all now suffer death. So to me, what Paul is saying here with respect to Adam makes perfect sense. And this is the case, for me at least, where by studying and meditating on a difficult passage, I come out of it knowing and understanding more about our existence than before I had tackled the difficult passage. Now, one thing that's puzzling to me and to many people, and also actually troubling, is the perfect comprehensiveness of the spread of sin in the world after Adam. Why is it that every human being that has ever lived, with the exception of Christ as a man, every human being that has ever lived has fallen into sin? Why is that? And it's not like it's even close. It's not like most of us almost make it to the end of our lives and then we sin. You know, it's not like we're 95 years old or something and and then the nurse irks us and and we curse at her or whatever and boom, that was our first sin. There goes our perfect life. Um, No, it's, it's not like that. We don't even come close. Just walk through a schoolyard at recess and you'll see plenty of evidence of sin at a very young age. So is it something in our biology that causes the prevalence of sin or some hereditary aspect of our spirit? Or is it related to the fact that we have free will? Is there some cosmic law that says that any being with free will is bound to sin? I personally think having free will has a lot to do with it. There's something about free will which hates restrictions of any kind. And the law is basically full of restrictions. And so we rebel against that. That's one possible explanation, I think, for the tendency of all of us to fall in sin. Certainly, the tendency towards sin is demonstrated in Adam. Adam had complete and total fellowship with God. I mean, he walked in the garden with God. He received direct counsel from God. And so, I guess if you look at it that way, it's no wonder that we, who are separated from God, it's no wonder that we sin if Adam, who was in direct fellowship with God, also sinned. 
This tendency of all humans to sin is often called the sin nature. And it's something that we all have. There are many speculations about why we have this sin nature and about what the mechanism is that transmits this sin nature from generation to generation. But they're just speculations. I don't think the reason is stated or even inferable from anything in the Bible. Anyway, whatever the reason is, we can't escape from sin. Even those of us who have received the great gift of Christ's sacrifice on our behalf, even we Christians struggle with sin continuously, sadly. Let's move on. In verse 12, Paul says, Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin. One thing this passage does is to force everyone who studies it to meditate on death. What is death, really, from a biblical point of view? How is death related to sin? And even, when does death start? It sounds like an odd question, but we'll ask it anyway. Death, of course, was the original stated punishment for sin. Way back in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, here's what God told Adam as he gave Adam the first command from God to humans, the very first law. Here's what he said, quote, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die, unquote. So, death was the stated punishment for the first sin. And in general, because of God's perfect standard of righteousness, remember, one of the guiding principles that we follow is God is righteous. Anyway, because of God's perfect standard of righteousness, all sin brings death. And so if you think about it, the very first sin that we commit brings the sentence of death upon us. And that's what Paul is saying here back in Romans. In this way, death came to all people because all sinned. And so because of our sin, we are all under the sentence of death. But going back to Adam and Eve, there's something interesting going on. The command of God in Genesis 2.17 seemed to imply that Adam and Eve would die right away once they sinned. Let's read it again. Quote, But you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Unquote. That phrase, when you eat from it, seems to indicate that death would occur right away. In fact, the literal Hebrew is, on that very day. And so the implication of the verse is that death would occur right away, on that very day, on the very day that they sinned. And yet, Adam and Eve went on living. And then they had kids. And then they founded the human race. And then later, their bodies died. And so, did God, like, give them a break or something? Or is there something else going on? And this is somewhat significant because this is the first place in the Bible that death is mentioned. And I think what it's teaching us here is that there are different aspects of death and that the biblical view of what death is may not line up with the popular view of what death is. If you ask the guy on the street what it means to die, he's going to say that it's when your body ceases to live, when your heart stops beating, or, or something like that. But if you ask the Christian what it means to die, well, the answer is more complicated. In John 3.16, a, a Bible verse very familiar, probably, to most of us, 
we're told that if we believe in Christ, that we will have eternal life. And yet, this belief in Christ doesn't exempt us from the death of our bodies. And so, clearly, the biblical view of death is different than the worldly view of death. In the Bible, there are two aspects of death. The death of the body, known as the bodily death, and the death of the soul, or also known as spiritual death. And as Christians, we all understand that our Christian faith doesn't exempt us from bodily death. There are plenty of funerals held every day for the deaths of Bible-believing, faith-filled Christians, and we all understand that. Our faith in Christ effectively exempts us from spiritual death. That's what we all believe. That's the basis for our hope. But again, it doesn't exempt us from bodily death. Our faith in Christ makes effective the atonement by Christ for our sins. Our sins are forgiven through Christ because He paid the price for them. He bore the punishment for them, and this makes it so that we don't have to experience spiritual death, which is the punishment for our sins. But despite this, we will have to face the death of our bodies, and we all know this. And so now, in light of this, let's go back to Genesis 2.17 and the so-called problem phrase there, where it says, for when you eat from the apple or the fruit, um, you will certainly die. We know that from a worldly point of view, Adam and Eve did not die right away. They did not experience a bodily death right away. But from a biblical point of view, from the biblical understanding of death, they did experience a spiritual death. Their souls were under a death sentence right away. In fact, from a biblical point of view, our spirits die when we commit that first sin. Paul talks about this in the book of Ephesians. Let's look at Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2. Quote, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. Unquote. Paul says, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And so, from a biblical point of view, sin brings death right away. Death to the soul right away. But through Christ, we can live. We can be raised from this spiritual death right away. That's what Paul says just a couple of verses later in the book of Ephesians. Let's read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Quote, but because of the great love for us, God, who was rich in mercy, made us alive, in other words, raised us from our spiritual death, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved." Unquote. So now, I think Genesis 2.17 makes more sense. Adam and Eve did die spiritually when they ate of the fruit, just like we die spiritually when we sin. However, and this seems to be the testimony throughout the Bible. Adam's sin also ushered in bodily death. So, in addition to bringing about spiritual death for themselves, the sins of Adam and Eve brought about bodily death for the whole human race. There were two significant trees in Eden. One was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the tree that they were forbidden to eat the fruit of. The other tree was the tree of life. 
And I think the meaning of that is clear. The tree of life somehow kept them from bodily death while they were in Eden. After their sin, Adam and Eve were banished from Eden and so no longer had access to the tree of life. And so their bodies, and in fact the bodies of the entire human race, were then subject to bodily death. And so when we consider the relationship between sin and death, it makes sense to consider the effects of Adam's sin on both aspects of death, both bodily death and spiritual death. As we talked about, spiritual death was the direct consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve, and spiritual death is a direct consequence of each of our first sins. We die a spiritual death when we first sin. What about bodily death? Well, bodily death is a consequence of the sins of Adam and Eve because they were banished from Eden. And so bodily death is really a consequence of the sin of Adam and Eve that affects the entire human race. Because both Adam and Eve sinned, they were banished from Eden, and so now the entire human race is subjected to bodily death. So we've all lost access to the tree of life because of the sin of Adam and Eve. So bodily death was a consequence of Adam and Eve's sin, but it's really not a consequence of our sins. Our sins do not bring about bodily death. Bodily death occurs to us because we're born as human beings, and in this fallen world, every creature is subject to bodily death. It's just a fact of life, so to speak. And so it's important, I think, to understand that our bodily death is not a punishment for our individual sins. The reason we know that is that when we accept Christ and are forgiven for our sins, this doesn't exempt us from bodily death. If bodily death was a punishment for our individual sins, then Christ would have paid that price and we as Christians would have been exempt from bodily death. But we're not. It's spiritual death, which is a punishment for our individual sins. And then through Christ, we can avoid spiritual death because Christ paid the price for our sins. Given then all of this meditation that we've done on death and its relationship to sin, let's break down what Paul says back in Romans 5 verse 12. Now I think it'll make perfect sense. Something we have to keep in mind is that Paul, in the interest of presenting a concise argument, in the interest of giving us a readable book of the Bible and not some as I said, philosophical treatise, which goes on for hundreds of pages, Paul has greatly abbreviated all these concepts to present a concise argument. Then also, Paul's main purpose in this passage was not to talk about the fine points and all of the connotations of what death means and how it's related to sin. That actually wasn't Paul's goal. His goal, as we discussed before, was to talk about how Christ effectively undoes the harmful effects of sin that Adam brought into the world. So Paul doesn't spell everything out here with regard to these topics of sin and death because that's not his purpose. Anyway, let's reread verse 12 and maybe apply the things that we've discussed through our meditation on these topics. So here's what verse 12 says again. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, uh, unquote, uh, we talked about that, how because Adam made unanimous sin among humans, both Adam and Eve were expelled from Eden, and so sin entered the world. And then Paul says, quote, and death through sin, unquote, 
And just as we spoke about, bodily death entered the world as a consequence of Adam's sin, and spiritual death is a direct punishment for each and every one of our sins, and and that's what Paul says next. And in this way, death, that is spiritual death, death came to all people because all sinned, unquote. Uh, So I think it all basically makes sense. Before we move on, let's discuss one issue that is brought up countless times by the scholars in their commentaries. And it got to the point where I literally wanted to throw the commentary across the room every time I saw this topic mentioned. Um, And as I said, if I wasn't reading the commentary on my Android tablet, I probably would have thrown it across the room, to tell you the truth. What what the scholars bring up is, is what they see as a problem with the last phrase of verse 12, where Paul says, and in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. They say that this phrase couldn't mean what it actually says because it doesn't cover the case where an infant dies at or near birth. They say, well, how could the infant have sinned already? And so they reason that Paul isn't speaking of our sin when he says, because all sinned, even though that's what it says in plain, well, Greek, I guess. But what he's, but they say, what he's saying is that Adam's sin is imputed to all of us, that his sin is placed upon each and every one of us, such that we all receive punishment for Adam's sin. In my opinion, this is absurd. And to me, it's a real stretch to come up with that conclusion. In fact, to me, it gives an interpretation of the text that is the the exact opposite of what the text actually says. As I explained before, Paul wasn't writing a philosophical treatise, and so he doesn't lay out every possible exception to the rule and every possible special case. Paul's speaking here of the normal case, where people in their lives face thousands of moral decisions, and in the course of that, they fall into sin. Paul nowhere suggests that he's speaking of an anomalous case where an infant dies before even being faced with any moral decisions. In fact, a simple reading of this verse clearly does not state that we are punished for Adam's sin, but that we are punished for our sin, because it says, because we sinned, because we sinned, because all sin, death came to all. So to me, it's clearly stating that we face spiritual death because we ourselves sinned. And besides, the doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin upon us, such that we are punished by God due to Adam's sin, this goes against, I think, each and every one of our guiding principles of of interpretation, which we laid out at the beginning. It goes against the fact that God is righteous. Right, because why would he punish us for Adam's sin? That, that's not a righteous thing to do. It goes against that God is just. Again, punishing us for Adam's sin is not just. It goes clearly against the fact that he's gracious and he, that he loves us. To suggest that an infant would be punished for a sin that he or she did not commit, I think is really a slander on the character of God. And moreover, The doctrine that Adam's sin is imputed to us such that we're guilty of Adam's sin, that goes against a principle that is taught throughout the Old Testament. And that principle is, we are only held responsible for our own sins. We're not held responsible for our parents' sins, nor are we held responsible for our children's sins. Let's look at a passage that teaches this. There's a few of them in the Old Testament. The Lord himself tells us this in Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 and 20. God himself 
is speaking here through Ezekiel in this passage. Here's what he says, quote, Yet you ask, why does the Son not share the guilt of the Father? Since the Son has done what is just and right and has been careful to keep all my decrees, he will surely live. The one who sins is the one who will die. The child will not share the guilt of the parent, nor will the parent share the guilt of the child. The righteousness of the righteous will be credited to them, and the wickedness of the wicked will be charged against them." This is a clear refutation of the proposed doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin to all of us. And it's a biblical principle. God doesn't hold against us the sin of our parents. And so he will certainly not hold against us the sin of our great, 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 grandfather, Adam. And so I reject this interpretation and this doctrine of the imputation of Adam's sin emphatically. And the only reason I bring it up is that it's so commonly mentioned in the scholarly commentaries. In my opinion, such an interpretation is a textbook example of an over-analysis of the text, inferring something from the text that Paul does not intend to communicate. And so we've finished with verse 12. It doesn't sound like we've made a lot of progress, but a clear understanding of the principles that we've discussed really paved the way for clearly understanding the rest of the passage. And so we'll continue next time digging through these verses and make much better progress in our next study. In fact, we'll finish up the chapter in our next study. We hope you enjoyed today's study. If you're interested in other studies in this series, visit scripturestudies.com. That's scripturestudies, all one word, .com. Or just Google Scripture Studies by Scott Sperling, and you're sure to find the site. The background music is licensed through Pond5. The theme music and interludes are by Scott Sperling, all rights reserved. Until we meet again, live well, serve the Lord with passion, and always lean on the Holy Spirit. May the Lord be with you in all your endeavors. Amen.